Okay. So some intro stuff on Lamentations. If you're not there, you can head over to Lamentations. The author is technically anonymous, but tradition, most people think that it's Jeremiah, that he just kept rolling along. Um, the date is pretty clear because it's, it's wedged right in between after the fall of Jerusalem and before they come back. Um, so that, those dates, if you want to write them down because you're super nerdy and you like that kind of stuff. Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. And it looks like the, the exiles returned in about 538 B.C. So this is where Lamentations is being written in that period. Okay, Jerusalem fell, but that nobody's returned back from exile yet. So it's kind of processing everything that just happened. Right? It is a, uh, a poetic book as you can probably tell from the way that your Bible has it structured and indented and whatnot, but it is a lament, as you would never get that from the title of the, title of the book itself. What is a lament? What does it mean to lament? It's like a sad poem. Like a sad poem? Yeah. Okay, like all of you have come out on Wednesday night to hear a sad poem. <laughs> Yeah, what else? When we think biblically, though, are there other, other things in the Bible that are laments? Psalms. There's psalms. A lot of the psalms. A lot of the psalms, yep. A lot of psalms are lament psalms, right? A lot of them are brutal lament psalms. We went through some of those when we were going through our summer in psalms. Um, what's one of the key features or some of the key features of laments? Oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're not holding back, right? You're, you're pouring your heart you say, how is there a fly? How, where do flies come from? It's 29 degrees outside. It's so strange. Anyway, I get distracted easily. Yes, oh, woe is me. Oh, poor me, right? It's, it's you are, you're actually pouring out your heart, and you're not holding back. You're saying, this is everything that's going on. This is how bad this is, right? Who are you pouring that out to? Well, think scripturally. Who are you pouring that out to? Sunday school answer. <laughs> Sunday school answer. God. Yeah, God. You're pouring that out to God, right? And most people think, can we do that? But yeah, read some of the lament psalms. Read some of the things we're going to see tonight. There are people on their faces before God Almighty saying, what are you doing? How long, O oh Lord, right? Are you going to forget us forever? Have you forgotten us? Do you know how bad this is? So we have the right to lament. It's a, it's a God-directed expression of deep sorrow. It's a petition to save. It's a form of protest. I don't like what's happening to me right now. God, where are you? It's processing of emotions. It's a place to voice confusion. If you read a lot of David's Psalms, right? He's kind of schizo sometimes, right? He's like, one minute, he's just like, where can I go and flee from your presence you are always around me in the next stanza. He's like, where are you? You're gone. You're missing. Right? And so it, it's, it's a place to voice confusion as well. So in the that's our genre. In our historical context, again, we're talking about Babylon. Right? Babylon is now in full power. They've just steamrolled over Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem is in ruins. And the people who lived through the invasion are now headed to Babylon in exile. And it's hard for us in 2023 America to wrap our minds about how truly horrific this was, the siege and the conquering of, of Babylon. And, but in the redemptive story, why, why did this happen? Why did, why did Jerusalem get invaded and exiled? Israel's disobedience. Yeah. Did God give many warnings? Plenty. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds of years worth. Yep. Lots and lots of prophets, right? <laughs> Jeremiah, we saw a couple weeks killed. ago, himself, right? Jeremiah himself stood there for 23 years straight and said, this is what's going to happen if you don't repent. So yeah, big story context, yes. Um, uh, God has finally judged Israel for their rejection of him, for their idolatry. They turned their backs on their God and they worshiped false gods and they embraced everything that went with that, right? All of the sin that went with that. They broke the covenant. 
One author wrote, God has just destroyed his own city. Right? Because it is. It's his, it's his country. It's his nation. It's his people. It's where his temple is. Right? God has just destroyed his own city. So this is a writer trying to process the trauma of exile, of God's judgment, everything that goes along with it. Um, one author said the Jeremiah is more historical narrative and the five poems of Lamentations capture the emotions. So Jeremiah and, and Second Kings and whatnot, excuse me, could get a little more historical narrative, but Lamentations is all emotions. This is what's happening. This is how terrible it is. All of that. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, it's not called Lamentations, it's called Echa, which means how, <laughs> which is the first uh, first word of Lamentations in one one. It says it in our English translations. How? So you see again somebody trying to process. I mean, we've all been there, right? We've all had those moments of darkness or confusion or trauma or whatever else, and we're just like, how did this happen? What am I supposed to do? Where do we go from here? That's kind of crystallizing what's happening. In Lamentations, okay? If I had to come up with a big idea, I took a stab at it, and I would say this. God graciously allows us space to process hard emotions, even if we're the ones that cause them. God graciously allows us space to process the hard emotions, even if we are the ones who cause them, right, through our own bad decisions. And so what we'll do is we will play our little overview video Give us seven minutes of an overview video by our friends at the Bible Project. And then we will come back and we are going to read most of Lamentations. Um, the thing that kind of puts the monkey in the works for reading all of Lamentations is chapter three. I should also point out that um, grammatically, structurally, this is an acrostic. So this means that every verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, which is why chapter 1 has 22 verses and chapter 2 has 22 verses. For some reason, in chapter 3, the guy decided to triple it and made 66 verses. And then 4 and 5 are back to 22 verses. So we will read all of 1, 2, 4, and 5, and most of chapter 3. So, so we can get that, get that feel. Okay? Are we ready? Are we excited? <laughs> All right, let us. Too <laughs> the Book of Lamentations. It's a unique book in the Old Testament that contains five poems from an anonymous author who survived and is now reflecting back on the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem and the destruction and the exile that followed. Remember the whole story from the Book of Exodus. The fall of Jerusalem and the exile was the most horrendous catastrophe in Israel's history up to this point. So remember, God had promised Abraham the land. He'd given David victory to make Jerusalem Israel's capital. And from David came the royal line of kings. You had God's presence there in the temple. and That's where the priests maintained the rituals of Israel's worship. And after 500 years of all of this history, in the summer of 587 BC, the city fell to Babylon. It was all decimated and gone. And so the Book of Lamentations is a memorial to the pain and confusion of the Israelites that followed this destruction. Now, the lament poems found here are not unique in the Bible. There's lots of them in the Book of Psalms. And these biblical poems of lament, they do a number of things. They're a form of protest. They're a way of drawing everybody's attention, including God's attention, to the horrible things that happen in this world that should not be tolerated. They're a way of processing emotion. So in these poems, God's people vent their anger and dismay at the ruin caused by people's sin and selfishness. And these poems are a place to voice confusion. Suffering makes us ask questions about God's character and promises, and none of this is looked down on in the Bible. Just the opposite. These poems of lament give a sacred dignity to human suffering. And so these human words of grief that are addressed to God have now become part of God's word to his people. The design of these five poems is very intentional. It's part of the book's message. So chapters one through four are called acrostics, which means alphabet poems. 
Each poetic verse begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is made up of 22 letters. Now, this very ordered and linear structure, it's in stark contrast to the disorder of the pain and the confused grief that's explored in these poems. So it's like Israel's suffering is explored A to Z and is trying to express something that is inexpressible. Chapters 1 and 2 each have one verse per letter, giving them a really similar design, but the themes are very different. So chapter 1 focuses on the grief and shame of a figure called Lady Zion. The poet personifies the city of Jerusalem as a widow, also called the daughter of Zion. And she sits alone. She's bereaved of her loved ones, devastated. No one comes to comfort her. It's a very powerful metaphor. And then Lady Zion speaks. She calls on the Lord to notice her faith. And through this image, the poet, he's showing that the city's destruction brought a level of psychological trauma on the Israelites that can only be expressed as the experience of a funeral and the death of a loved one. Chapter 2 focuses on the fall of Jerusalem and how it was a consequence of Israel's sin and was brought about by God's wrath, which is a key word in this poem. Now, it's important to remember that in the Bible, God's wrath is not spontaneous, volatile anger. The biblical poets and prophets, they use this word to talk about God's justice. So Israel had entered a covenant agreement with God, and for centuries they've been violating it by worshiping other gods, perpetrating injustice, oppressing the poor. And so, yes, God is slow to anger, but he eventually does get angry at human evil, and he will bring his just anger in the form of punishment. In the case of Jerusalem, this involved allowing Babylon to come and city. And so this poem is acknowledging that God's wrath is justified, but this doesn't keep the poet from lamenting and asking God to show compassion once again. Chapter 3 breaks this design pattern by having three verses per letter, so it's the longest poem in the book. And the voice is that of a lonely man speaking out of his suffering and grief as a representative of the whole people. What's interesting is that this chapter is full of language that's drawn from other parts of the Old Testament, from the laments of Job and from other important lament psalms, and even from the suffering servant poems in Isaiah. And the poet sees his hardship as a form of God's justice, like chapter 2 said. But paradoxically, this is what gives the poet hope, and it leads him to offer the only hopeful words in the whole book. Because of the Lord's covenant faithfulness, we do not perish. His mercies never fail. They're new every morning. How great is your faithfulness, O God. So I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will put my hope in him. So the poet reasons, if God is consistent enough to bring his justice on human evil, then he'll also be consistent with his covenant promise to not allow evil to get the final word. And so for this poet, God's judgment is the seedbed of hope for the future. Chapter 4 goes back to the same alphabet structure as chapters 1 and 2, and is a vivid and disturbing depiction of the two-year siege in Jerusalem. And it contrasts how things used to be in Jerusalem of the past, and how terrible they became in the siege. So children used to laugh and play in the streets, but now they beg for food. The wealthy used to eat lavish meals, but now they eat whatever they can find in the dirt. And the royal leaders used to be full of splendor, but now they're famished and dirty and unrecognizable. And the anointed king from the line of David has been captured and dragged away. So the poem's power comes from the shock of these contrasts, and it's exploring the depth of the suffering that Israel brought on itself. Now the final poem is unique because it breaks the design pattern. It's the same length as all of the other alphabet poems, but the alphabet order is gone. It's like the poet can't hold it together anymore and his grief has exploded back into chaos. The poem is a communal prayer for God's mercy. Israel begs God not to ignore their suffering or abandon them. And the poem offers a long list of all of the different kinds of people who were devastated by the fall of the city. They ask God not to forget these people. And they lament on behalf of others, giving voice to their pain. Suffering in silence is just not a virtue in this book. God's people are not asked to deny their emotions, but voice their protests, to vent their feelings, and pour it all out before God. The book ends with something of a paradox. The poet acknowledges that God is the eternal king of the world, but also that Israel's circumstances make them feel like God is nowhere to be found. And so the final words of the book leave this tension totally unresolved. It asks, unless you've totally rejected us, and the book ends.
The poet doesn't offer a nice, neat conclusion, much like our own experiences of pain and suffering. The story of the Bible doesn't end here, but this very important book shows us how lament and prayer and grief are a crucial part of the journey of faith of God's people in a broken world. And that's what the book of Lamentations is all about. Okay. The book of the prophet Ezekiel. No, that's next week. Ezekiel was a <laughs> All right, so a good overview for us of where we're headed. Let's uh, dig right in in chapter 1. So everybody with us in Lamentations chapter 1. I'll read those 22 verses for us. And then we'll back up and talk about some of it. All right, so Lamentations. Chapter 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people, how like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations, she who is a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, and therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts, and she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for my enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over her, over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you that all who pass by look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. And the Lord commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men, they have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves in the house like it is death. They heard my groaning, yet there was no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them, as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Okay, so first chapter, 
as the video kind of summed again, this is kind of a, a lamentation from the city herself, right? Calling out. Um, so what caused this conundrum? What does the text tell us? What caused this terrible situation in the city? What does verse 5 tell us? That the Lord has afflicted her for because the most many transgressions. Yeah. Sin. Yeah, sin, right? Mm -hmm. And God was rejected because of idolatry, right? Verse 8 says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Um, idolatry, again, you'll see uh, throughout this whole thing. Is this just? Is, is this city who's being personified as a woman, is she saying this is just that has happened, or is she saying it's unjust? Is God being unfair? No. Verse 18 tells us that outright. Says the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. It takes a lot of courage to say that, doesn't it? In the midst of such tremendous suffering, when you realize your sin, to say that the Lord is right to afflict me. It's very courageous to say that. It's also very true. We see the futility of idolatry, the nearsightedness, that idols can't help us and they bring shame. She literally calls out to her idols, right? At one point, um, eight and nine, um, you see the shame in that. She sinned grievously. She became filthy. She's now despised. They've seen her nakedness, which biblically speaking is always shameful. It's very graphic in verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. You know, the, the disgustingness of that, right? Um, in verse 19, it says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Who are her lovers? Her idols. Yeah. She called out for her idols to save her. Of course, she realizes now there's no point in that. They can't help her. Idolatry is, is futile. Anything else as we read through this that jumped out at you guys or questions on or hit you in a certain way? And then we'll move into some application. Uh, verse 21, <clears throat> she says there's no one to comfort her. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's, I mean, this is a, a grievous listing of, of pain. Yeah. You know, and of course, it's everybody. Yeah. But and that, that's kind of the icing on the cake. It's just there's no comfort. Yeah, it's one thing to suffer, right? But it's another thing to suffer alone, right? Right, and have no kind of help that's coming. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Anything they saw that resonated with them? The way it ends is like on a really sad note. For my groans are many, and I am sick at heart. Yeah, you know what? What's like when your heart is sick? That you know you're. You just, yeah, you know, it's really, yeah, you're, you're weak. You know, ESV goes with my heart. Takes is all faint. your energy out of you. Yeah. Yeah. You're exhausted. Yeah. Right. Anybody ever been so stressed out from grief and everything? You're just exhausted. Yeah. This is a uh, Holman HCS. What about some application? So here we are in 2023, New Jersey. How does Lamentations chapter one help us? What kind of themes can we pull out to encourage us or warn us or warn? Why do you say warn, Wendy? What's, what's the warning? The world is just so difficult. Yeah. 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 It could. I mean, you know, the United States isn't in a covenant with the Lord like Israel was, but still bad decisions and bad judgment and bad leadership. But at one point, you know, she she uh, she goes after the priests um, and says, hey, my priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. They were just trying to find, they were trying to look out for themselves. Right? They abandoned their people. They're just like, heck with this. I'm foraging for food myself. Yeah. So bad leadership will definitely do that. But yeah, the warnings for idolatry. Absolutely. And then she, uh, to, idolize, to idolize the government yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, the whole hope, right? The whole hope is, is could be government. Yeah. And there was a lot of that. There was, you know, um, the corporate solidarity aspect of Israel. Like, they, they were so proud of their nation and their heritage. You know, that was part of it was like, 
prophet after prophet would come in and say, no, God's going to judge you for idolatry. And the response was, it's no. <laughs> We're God's people. He would never reject us. No, he's, you're sinning against him. You broke the covenant. So yeah, it's going to eventually be judged. I think maybe another application. Do we have to be okay when God justly disciplines us? I mean, do we just have to sit there and take it? Do we have to be okay with the consequences of where we are? Do we have to be okay? Yeah. Well, do you see much acceptance here in chapter one? I mean, you see a shadow here or there, like God is just, but. I feel like that's as close to accepting things as I generally get. I'm like, yeah, okay, God's good, but I'm still going to whine and cry. And yeah. I cry a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to. I'm shocked. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. This is not someone who's just suffering silently, right? Like, one of the best things about. The laments, is, as hard as it is to read on a cold Wednesday night, is the reality that we have a right to, God doesn't expect us to suffer in silence, right? I mean, this, they're giving voice to their sufferings. And so, yeah, there's, there's a sense that we don't have to be okay. It's okay to not be okay, right? We just can't stay there. We can't live there. <laughs> But it's okay to have our moments. It's okay to lament. It's okay to be like, this is awful. What is going on? Right? And when you think about it, who better to lament that to than God Almighty? Instead of stuffing it down inside you and not lamenting at all, growing bitter, lamenting it to other people who really can't help you, God's the one that could help. Yeah, he can take it. Yeah. <laughs> Pour it out. He asked you to do it. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, Come to me. Sometimes the hardest things that you go through, the sweetest outcomes, you learn so much. From yeah. Them, you know? Deepest people have been through the deepest waters, right? That's where God does his best work in the midst of all this suffering, right? Spurgeon said he does his best work in the dark. It's not, no, we don't want that. It's like that, those, are, those are lessons right there. Right? When everything's happy-go-lucky-ducky, right? everybody's like, mm, yeah, God, thanks. You know, throw them a bone every once in a while, but you don't really think of these things. right? So there's, you get a lot of mileage and maturity from times like this, too. Don't hold it in. Go to God. You know, and go to God with passages like this and lament psalms and just let it out. Right? So we don't have to be okay. We can't stay there, but we don't have to be, we don't have to be okay. Right? Um, we experience the natural consequences of our sin, right? And that's what this author says right away, right? God is just. The Lord is in the right. I've rebelled against his word. He's the one who told me this was going to happen. So with that venting, there is an ownership of it as well. All right, let's move on to chapter 2. Anybody want to volunteer to read chapter 2? Maybe we can split it up, 11 and 11, anybody? I can read. Excellent. Why don't you and no just split it up together, you know? I'll read the first verse, and you can read the rest. <laughs> you guys are so cute. Now the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation 
for the daughter of Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed feasts and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has handed over to the enemy the walls of the palaces. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to tear, to tear down the wall around the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made rampart, ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground, their bars he has broken and destroyed. Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the street of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, a virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquities to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They kiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Your heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent, day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt, dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of, their, of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemies destroyed. Okay. Thank you. So again, going into detail, right, um, of the destruction of the city. So who, it's abundantly clear in the first six verses who's done this. The Lord. The Lord. Right? Look at all the he's. He cast down, he has not remembered. The Lord swallowed up without mercy. He has brought down, he has cut down, he has withdrawn, he has burned. He has bent his bow, he has killed, he has poured out. This is all God, right? Yahweh has done this. And I think maybe we can pick something out right there because I hear a lot and probably too often, right? When people are in the midst of severe suffering, right? They automatically want to attribute it to Satan say that Satan is the one. And I think if you were in the suffering, right, you would think, well, Satan has done this. This is Satan has, has won this. That's not what the scripture tells us, right? And we know that God is sovereign over all things anyway. So even if he's 
obviously using, which we'll see at the end, he's using the evil that is in the hearts of the Babylonians to judge his people, right? They're still going to be held responsible. So yeah, maybe Satan was inciting the Babylonians, right? But ultimately, sovereignly, who's the one that's doing it? It's God. So I think a quick pastoral application is let's not give Satan too much credit here. You know, we, we're quick to jump to the spiritual warfare aspect of things, but we have to remember who's sovereign over all things. And so God is the one who is granting all things to happen according to his will, even the hard stuff, which is hard for us to think, right? What about other stuff that jumped out at you in this chapter? These 22 verses of encouragement and lightheartedness. The children starving. Yeah. Yeah. It gets bad, right? Yeah. Mothers eating their children. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up cannibalism. Yeah. Right? The Lord was like an enemy. You don't hear that. The Lord was like an enemy. Yeah. That jumped out at me, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yahweh, our covenant God, has become our enemy. And then automatically you think, like Romans 5, right? Like the gospel. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Right? That, 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 yes, we were his enemies. But he's the one who died for us and made us his children. Yeah. Rejected his own altar. Rejected his own altar, yep. He defiles his own sanctuary. Crushed his own temple. Yep. <coughs> yep. Anybody else? Other things jumping out? Uh, uh, verse, <coughs> excuse me, verse 14 was interesting. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive <laughs> visions. They have not exposed your iniquity. Yeah. You know, just ignoring the, the prophets. Yeah. And, and you know, the, uh, the, the nature of the sacrifices. To, yeah. To, under, to see your sin and understand what it is. Yep. The, the idols tell you what you want to hear. Yep. Versus expose your iniquity to you. Yeah. Why is Jesus so livid when he comes? <laughs> because the prophets and the priests, or the priests really didn't do anything to speak the truth that the people needed to hear. They rejected all the prophets. I think when we were at Acts, right, the big, Stephen's uh, big big speech before he got killed, right, was like, which one of the prophets didn't your forefathers kill and reject, right? So absolutely, you know, they're a big part of this blame are the leaders of Israel, where they should have been saying, like Jeremiah, stop, you're sinning. They just went right along and saying, no, everything's fine. Just keep giving your money to the temple and... Inviting me to those parties. Everything will be fine, right? We see sin bringing a lack of joy. Uh, we see sin bringing physical and emotional sickness. 2.11, uh, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. ESV is gross. It says my bile is poured out to the ground. So it's probably, we're talking about vomiting here, right? So emotional, physical, psychological sickness as a result of sin. Fear, worry, and anxiety, right? We see the horrors of the seeds that we talked about in cannibalism. But we see people enduring suffering, right? They're, they're still in it. These people are still in the midst of this, right? They're still venting. They're still lamenting. Not only that, they're being mocked while they're enduring. All they're this. being mocked, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Laughed at. Yeah. People walking by, hissing at them, mm-hmm. wagging their heads, shaking their heads, pointing their fingers, laughing at Let's go to chapter 3. We'll see a big turn here. I am the man who's seen affliction under the, under the rod of his wrath. He's driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his head again the whole day long. Right? Kind of goes on with the same kind of thing that he's been talking about. Uh, again, he look at all the he's. He's walled me in. He's blocked me. He's like a bear. He turned aside. He bent his bow. He drove his arrows into my kidneys. He's filled me with bitterness, all of that. And then there's this kind of turn in 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood, which is just, and the gall, just bitterness, right? My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But, like, out of nowhere, just all of a sudden, smack dab in the middle of this book. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Hope! We just read like 60-something verses of nothing but darkness and pain and everything, and suddenly he finds hope. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Wow. Like how many times have we quoted this, seen this, sung this? And look what it's in the middle of. Right? Do we always see that in context when we pull this verse out, put it on a t-shirt or a coffee mug? (laughs) Put that whole thing in context, right? Maybe we do that next time. We have we have this verse on the front, and then in the last part we can on the back part we could have something like my stomach turned up all my bile on the ground. <laughs> but that's the context of this. But look at look at how bright the hope breaks through in the midst of all this tremendous suffering. It's just like that just makes you want to stand up and scream, like, yes, that's the hope. There is Hope is this weird high point in this book in the middle of suffering that you can't even imagine. Like, let's face it, we've all been through some stuff, but I don't think anybody's ever had to eat their children to survive, right? <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that we've seen, you know, the walls of Vernon kicked in and all our family killed and the city burned to the ground and everybody dragged off, right? Or, or crawling around for a crust of bread to eat, right? This is suffering on a level which we really have no concept of. And and our lives could get pretty dark at times, right? Sin is alive and well. And then this kind of hope breaks through that, right? And again, in application, do we realize that this verse of hope comes in the midst of this horrific suffering? So if our suffering is that horrific, how much more so must our hope be in order to pull us out of that suffering? So this is the high point of the book, and the encouragement in that is fight for hope in the darkness. He also has this moment uh, in 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, that thick word, that Hebrew word, tesed, which is the, the covenant, faithfulness, loyalty, like, you're really calling on his character here. Like, according to his character, it's impossible for him to be anything else other than compassionate and loving. Why? He doesn't afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He's not doing this, if it makes sense, maliciously. He's not doing this out of just the evil that is in his heart. Because there is no evil in his heart. He's allowing this because of his righteousness his judgment on them for sin, but he's also going to bring redemption through this as well, as hard as it is to think about. But look at him. And so church, when we're in this place, like call on the compassion, the, the character of our God. No, it's fight for it. It's like, no, I know he's compassionate. I know he's steadfast. I know he's full of love. I know he's not doing this just to punish me. He's doing this for his glory and for my good and for my growth. And then at the, uh, in 40, uh, we see the, a kind of a call to application again. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Finally, right? <laughs> Hundreds of years later, somebody's like, okay, now we get it. Let us, <laughs> let us look at what we've done. Let us return to the Lord. Let us repent. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you Unless have forgiven Jeremiah, who wrote this, and he's been saying this for 23 years. Yes. <laughs> and here he is saying it again. But, I mean, how often is that that when we're in suffering, God has our full attention? Right? So it's like, okay, I'm listening now. <laughs> You've taken everything else away from me. Now I'm listening. Now you have my undivided and just what a, what a call to application there. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Yeah. Any other thoughts from that? I mean, I, I want to spend a little bit more time on that just because of the hope aspect of it and the context of it. Verse 25 says, The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To the one. Yeah. 
And what does that say about the object of our hope, right? Let's face it, if we're in this trial, our hope is that it stops. <laughs> our hope is that the pain stops. But this author tells us our hope should not be in just the pain stopping. Our hope should be in God Almighty himself. That's a big difference when we're in trial. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Other thoughts? Chapter 3? Huge wake-up call. Yeah? How so? He's letting these people know, hey, don't mess with me. You know? Yeah. Doing things that are not acceptable, and you know who I am. Yeah. There's a real sense that he's vindicating his holiness. Yeah. You know? Uh, well, we'll hear again. I always feel like I become that preacher who's like, tune in Sunday where we'll talk about that. But, <laughs> tune in Sunday where we'll talk about that. Do not use the name of the Lord God in vain. And he says, for I am the Lord your God, and I'm not going to hold him guiltless who does that. So it's, it's the reality of sin. It's like, no, just because God gave you hundreds of years where he was gracious and it didn't happen didn't mean it was never going to happen. We can think we're getting away with sin, but we're not. Yeah. I thought verse um, 38 was interesting. It's very Job-like. Is Job -like. not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Yeah. Shall I take Plus good from him and not, what does he say, evil or hard time? And Job, yeah. 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 And he references Job 2.10. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, again, we have to realize that, you know, sometimes in our minds we split this thing up. Good things come from God and bad things come from Satan. That's not what the Bible says. If God's sovereign, he's sovereign. So the difference is he's going to redeem evil for his purposes in our lives. He's going to redeem these suffering times. If we let him, like like they say, like uh, blessed is the one who, who waits, as Tony said, blessed is the one who waits for God. Like, wait on him to do this. Stop kicking against him. Yeah. Take your punishment like a man and do what you got to do here. <laughs> Turn around. That's what he says. Examine our ways and return to the Lord. So, but emotions get in the way of a lot of things. So chapter four, um, again, it was that contrast that he talked about in the movie of the way that the, the things used to be and the way that they are now, right? They're starving, basically, in this siege, and that is not a pleasant way to go at all in in verse 9 of chapter 4 comes right out and says happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger like at least if you got run through by the sword you were dead but if you were starving that would take a long time it'd be very very painful what's that painful death oh yeah yeah and again some people even resorted to cannibalism imagine that the emotional turmoil of you have to resort to this to stay alive right in verse 10, tender-hearted women have cooked their own children. Yeah. They've eaten them to survive the siege. Yep. Yeah. Again, like I'm saying, a, a level of suffering now we can't even fathom. Right? And so when we're in trial and we're in suffering and we think the word of God is nothing to say for us, it's like, man. Look all the way at the end there in 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you shall the cup pass, you shall be drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. He's saying, guess what? The people that have done this, the other nations that are still rebelling against me, like Babylon, like Edom, right? They will be responsible for their sins. That's the weird thing. Like you, I think we talked about that in Jeremiah too. It's like God unleashes Babylon to do his bidding, right? But they're still going to be held responsible for what they did to Jerusalem, right? It's like they're just not getting away from it. They don't get a pass. Like they still, that's still sinful what they did. But God in his sovereignty stands behind that sin and that evil and redeems it for his purposes. Again, classic example, look at Christ on the, at Christ on the cross. Like, sure, it was the evil that was in the, the hearts the hearts of the Romans, the hearts of the Jews that nailed Christ to the cross. But it was God's plan to allow that to happen for the greatest good. 
But those people that nailed Christ to the cross, you better believe when they died, they answered to God for killing the Son of God. It's the, these things in your head to talk about the sovereignty of God. It's just like, wow. And his death was not easy. No. No. So he went through tremendous turmoil. Oh, yeah. Unimaginable also, right? Uh, yep. Because he was human, he suffered. Yep. He, he suffered that. Unless that one Roman soldier became a Christian. Said, Surely this is the Son of God? Yep. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Could be. He was he probably unemployed be. after that. <laughs> if he was still alive. Yeah. What's the first part of 22 say? We get another little shot of hope. What is it? What does the uh, first part of verse 22 say? It's going to end, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, good news. It's here. <laughs> it's finally here, but at least it's going to be over soon. Right? He's not going to keep you in exile no longer. And we think about that sometimes when we're in sickness and sorrow, right? God doesn't allow that for any longer than he deems necessary, right? It's not like he's just going to let it go on and on and on to punish us. God in his sovereignty and his wisdom, for as long as his purposes allow, as long as it is for our growth and for his good, that's how long he's going to allow it and he has an end to it in mind. And of course, we pray that that end comes quickly. And we pray that we learn the things we're supposed to learn in the midst of it and grow. And he has mercy and makes that time short. But just even the duration of a trial and suffering is controlled by God himself. As opposed to just letting us linger and suffer for a while. And peeking down on us from heaven above and being like, another year. <laughs> no, he's got a plan yeah and then chapter 5 as he said it's although it is uh, 22 verses it's kind of just uh, <laughs> like how the guy in the video said uh, you know um, he just like can't control his own grief or something like he just forgot he was doing an acrostic or something and just started writing willy nilly I don't know if anybody are journalers here but you know we're just kind of bleh, it just goes out on the page and has no rhyme or reason you know that's kind of what chapter 5 is about. It's just this communal prayer. You know, it's like, remember us, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance is gone. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought, which I just think is absolutely hilarious. There's a guy who spends a lot of time harvesting wood and finding wood. And then I snicker at the people who buy their own wood. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We're given no rest. Right? Slaves rule over us. Our skin is hot as the oven. Like goes on and on and on. Just this final kind of lament. Right? Um, but in that we see, again, what do we see in verse 1? What is he calling on the Lord to do? Remember. Remember. If you know your Psalms, he, David calls on God to remember. David calls on God to notice him, to incline his ear to him, to hear me. David calls on, anybody pray like that? Like we're a lot, some of these things you read, we're like, we could do that? <laughs> we can pray like this? Like, God, do you see me? Do you understand what's going on here? Remember me. Like, I'm your child, right? Yes, we can pray like this. It's in the Bible. He says, remember, so we have full this is a lament. I mean, if there's is kind of a verse that would sum up a lament, like that's a good one. Remember me, God. Like, open your eyes. Look at what's going on around here. That's a good summary of a lament. In verse 19, right? Suddenly, all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures for all generations. It's like he has this moment where he pops back up to the surface, takes a breath of air, and realizes, oh, yeah, that's who God is. Yes. You, O Lord, Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures for all generations. And I think encouragement for us there is don't lose sight of who God is in the middle of darkness and suffering. He pops up one little, one little time, pops up and remembers who God is. Don't lose sight of who God is in the midst of suffering. Sometimes we can fall into that trap where everything's going bad. God must be bad. Something must be wrong. No, God's still who he is. He's still on a throne. He's still good. He's still compassionate. 
And you see the author kind of fighting for that. Just one little glimmer, one little moment where he remembers that. And let's remember that. How can we, how can we increase our chances of remembering that during a trial? Getting into the Word. Yeah, remembering it when we're not in a trial. <laughs> Burning it into our brains, right? Part of the role of a pastor, for better or for good, is to prepare people to suffer. So when it does happen, they're equipped and they're ready. And so beating into your brains, no, God is good. God is compassionate. God is faithful. God is there. God is sovereign. And so when you run into a trial and you're sitting on that couch with a box of tissues, like often happens, right? I'm able to remind you of the same things and you're not hearing it for the first time. I'm reminding you of that. God's still those things. He's still here. He's still with us. And he has a plan and he's in the midst of it. So don't lose sight of who God is in the darkness and suffering and cultivate that awareness. Drive that deep down into your hearts now so that when darkness and suffering comes, you're prepared. And then the end. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Question mark. Like, isn't that just it? Like, life doesn't have a neat and tidy resolution all the time, right? It's like the way this book ends is like, maybe it worked out. Maybe it didn't. Maybe you are going to let it work out. I mean, we're on this side of the cross, so we know how that works out ultimately, right? But they didn't. Now, in the Hebrew, is there a punctuation mark at the end of the sentence? Uh, I would have to look at that. I'm just curious. I definitely think they leave it hanging. Yeah. Well, what is that? It tells us again that, you know, on our human nature, right? When we hit when we hit trials and things, we want answers. <laughs> Why did this happen? When is it going to end? What do I have to do to make it stop? You know, God, what's your plan? Tell me everything. Why is this happening? God's up there going, I owe you no explanation whatsoever. Right? And sometimes we don't really see a resolution. Right? There's things that happen in our lives where we're not going to see a resolution until heaven. And God doesn't really owe us a resolution. That's the difficult part, right? That's when we got to trust who he is. Somebody had their hand up. Frank? Yeah. Uh, um, but, but in the commentary here, it uh, takes us back to, to Micah 7, 18. You know, that last verse, are you going to be angry, you know, with us beyond measure or forever? But it says in Micah 7, 18, you do not, that, that the Lord does not stay angry forever. Yeah, amen. But, but, but delights to show mercy. Yeah. And, that, that, that's, that's the answer yeah. to that last verse. That goes back to his character, right? You got to know who he is. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, and so that, that thing we feel when like things in our lives are not completely resolved, right? <laughs> They're not always going to be completely resolved, right? No, it's usually in his time. Exactly. And some of that, too, is we put far too much expectation in this world. Like, if this world was so perfect, you know, it, it wouldn't be this world. Heaven awaits us, a new kingdom, right? That's the perfect world. And so when we get there, that's when everything is going to be perfect. This world can have moments of, of awesomeness. It can have also moments of confusion and darkness and trial. And sometimes <clears throat> things are not going to be resolved, and that grinds against everything in us that's American. No, no, we want answers. We want it. And, I, and the way that this ends is just so like, huh? <laughs> I thought the beginning of verse 21 was interesting that it says, they're asking the Lord to restore us to yourself so we may return. So yeah. God is the one who is in control. <coughs> it's making it very clear there. Yeah. Lord, restore us to yourself so yeah. we may return. Amen. So God's got to do it. Yeah. He's Again, much it. different than calling out stop the pain. Right. Which, fine. We're, okay, fine. Call out stop the pain. Yeah. But don't end there. Don't right? end there. We want it to restore us to yourself. Yeah. Right. That's the goal. And it also recognizes God's authority yeah. in doing it. 
Amen. That we can't bring God to us or do anything. Yeah. It's got to be God who does it. Yeah. Just a couple kind of closing thoughts too. Um, how do we walk through the kind of the carnage of our own bad decisions, right? Because that's essentially what this is here, right? That, that I remember in the video where the guy had the little seedbed at the bottom middle where it said uh, God's judgment is the seedbed for hope for the future, right? And he, you know, he threw uh, 322 in there, you know, your mercies are new every morning, you know, raise your faithfulness, right? There's, we have to realize there is some comfort actually in hitting rock bottom because God's still there, number one. And it is, I, I love that. God's judgment is the seedbed for hope for the Sometimes the end of our rope is actually the beginning of the way up, right? We finally reach the end of our rope. Okay, cool. We reach the end. Start climbing. Like, let's go. Like, God's here with us. It's the yeah. It's the seedbed of hope for the future. God will restore us, but He may not change the consequences. Oh sure. Of our decisions, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. People say, well, how come uh, I still have AIDS? Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. Plenty of guys who have dramatic spiritual transformation are still behind bars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a little gross thing, but minor thing. For every decision we make, good or bad, right, there's always a consequence. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why personal transformation, right? That 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 heartfelt transformation where we become new people. That's that's even more important than getting out of the situation that we're in, right? Because that changes the perspective of the situation. That and puts our hope where it should be in God. So talk about your raw book for a chilly Wednesday night. Right? But in the middle, I hope that you never look at, uh, I hope you never sing Great is Thy Faithfulness the same way again. Because right? you realize where it came from. Or that other worship song, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. that one? Or it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Yeah, Bridget. Um, have historians ever estimated exactly how many people were in the city during the siege? Like, do they have any idea what the population was? Or I'm sure somebody did. I, I don't know. I don't know. It was probably following the, the customs of, of war. Like, you'd probably want to leave a handful of the poor in the city just to kind of keep the city. You want to take the strong back to you to help you build your country. And then whoever else was dispensable, you probably just got rid of. But I don't, I, yeah, somebody had to have. I just right. don't know. What that would be. Back yep. To build and there were yep. There that used yep. Yep. Yeah. Generally, they left the poor and other people at that point to kind of at least keep some, some semblance of civilization in the city. Yeah. Is there any sense if, um, like, who was reading this at the time? Like, I know it's certainly written about that period. Yeah. Uh, of, the destruction, but there's no temple. They're scattered. They're broken. Yeah, it's certainly written about them, and it's expressing what they're experiencing. But yeah. is there any sense that they were actually reading this at that time, or, or had the ability to? I don't know how soon after that time. I definitely think it took some time to get into circulation and, and all of that. But again, think of how important it was to the nation of Israel, right. right? To know their history. At some point. Right, it made it into circulation, and I'm sure even before that, right, it was oral tradition, like stories of the siege. Right, those were told by families for generations before they ever got their hands on a scroll. So there was that oral tradition period too that right. they absolutely knew what happened. Right. Um, but then I think the scrolls would have come in generations later, where you could see, okay, this is this, I'm reading this in black and white. I don't really have anybody left to tell me who was there, or granddaughter of somebody who was there. You know, all those people have died out, but we have this now to tell us what happened. Yeah. Well, I hope you're encouraged. I hope you are encouraged by the hope in chapter 3 and the encouragement of the sovereignty of God even in great suffering as well and His compassion. Who he is. So, let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you. Uh, this is a hard, uh, hard book. We don't often spend time in these books. And I thank you so much for these faithful ones who have come out to, Lord, to bravely <laughs> look at the, the horrific suffering that your people suffered, that you allowed. Uh, you allowed the evil in the hearts of the Babylonians to conquer this city, your city, 
and to judge your nation that you told them for so long would happen. And Lord, may that do so many things in our heart to turn you towards us, to embed our hearts and our souls in who you are and your character, Lord. Even in those times of darkness, may we, like Israel, remember those moments of great is your steadfast love and that you are compassionate, Lord, and your mercies are new every morning and that you will not let our trials go on longer than is necessary and you are sovereign over evil, Lord. And ultimately, of course, we see that in the person and the work of Jesus who came from Israel the one who was prophesied, the Messiah who came from Israel, the one who would uh, take our place and make us, even though we are enemies, Lord, to be adopted into your family through faith. Thank you so much for uh, your faithfulness, especially in Jesus Christ. Be with us, dismiss us with your blessings, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.